0: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work.
1: I was running a workshop in Vancouver about three or four years ago, and I was in the what I thought was a flow, and I was talking about passion, and I thought I was doing pretty good. I thought I was doing pretty good, until this girl puts her hand up, and she says, you know, Philip, I get all this passion thing, but she says, I've lived my passion, and I'm sitting before you, I'm broke, and I'm miserable, not kind of the thing you really want to hear as a speaker, when you think you're doing pretty good, so I said, okay, so what was your passion? She said, soccer, football, as I would call it, so I was thinking, well, you know, who did you play for, or who did you play with? She said, my country. And if anybody knows anything about Canadian soccer for women, it is extremely high level. So I says, where does football or soccer fit in your life right now? And she says, I'm not involved in any capacity in football right now. That's the first piece of information that I took in. Because if it was her true passion, she would be in it regardless of whether she can monetize it or not. We're all seeking our passion but we've got to be able to monetize it. It's conditional. If it's your passion, you will do it regardless of whether you can make money out or not. My intuition, my little spidey senses were kicking in. I'm thinking there's something wrong here. I said, what are you going to do now? She says, I'm thinking of being a carpenter. I said, great. Do you know any carpenters? She said, yeah, my dad. But she says, I don't want to be broke. And I said, is your dad broke? She said, yeah, pretty much. Meanwhile... The solution-oriented people, the people who live in their head, the analytical minds, all start coming in with the answers and the solutions. Oh, that'd be amazing! There's not many women carpenters in Canada. One guy's a contractor who goes, "I could get you a job," and I'm going, "Guys, appreciate all that, but let me just stick with this lady for a minute." And I looked at her and I said, "I'm going to read something to you." And I picked up an excerpt from the book *Open* by Andre Agassi, and I read the following. I spend many hours roaming the streets of Palermo, drinking strong black coffee, wondering what the hell is wrong with me. I did it. I'm the number one tennis player on earth, and yet I feel empty. If being number one feels empty, unsatisfying, what's the point? Why not just retire? I picture myself announcing that I'm done. I choose the words I will speak at the news conference. Also, I tell myself that retiring won't solve my essential problem. It won't help me figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life. No, what I need is a new goal. The problem all this time is that I've had a set of goals that are not belong to me. So I'm the number one. So our computer loves me. So what? Almost immediately, the guy sitting in the front gets quite angry and irate, and he goes, yeah, but hang on a second. Andre Agassi retired with 30, 40, 50 million in the bank. This girl just said she was broke. I said, I'll come back to you in a minute, Mr. Angry. (laughs) So he's got his own issues going on, which we dealt with later on. And I went back to her and I said to myself, I just, I just couldn't get it. I'm just, I was feeling something and I didn't know what it was. And I said, how's your relationship with your father now? And what she said was, it's good now. More information. I said, why is it so good now? She said, well, I started to get into real estate and and invest, and I can kind of talk to him at that level. And I said, God love this poor girl. She's got to go and study real estate just so she can converse with her father. I said, when you got to the World Cup, when you played for your country, when you played that final game and you met your father, did you hear the words that you desperately wanted? she's looking at me and says, I am proud of you, or I love you. She put her head down. She completely broke down. I just left her go. She just cried and cried and cried. And when she lifted her head, she looked at me and she says, I fucking hate soccer. (laughs) I fucking hate soccer. I hate what it has done to me. I hate the fact that it has brought me away from the very thing that I want to do. And I hate the fact that it has kept me from the very man that I'm seeking approval from today. Ten years she pursued. Ten years she pursued a dream. And that day turned into be quite famous. And I mean famous not in a global sense, but within my community. Because I talk about it as someone else's life. And I'm going to write a book on that as well. And it was like I set it up. The guy sitting directly across from this lady, desperately as a kid, wanted to play soccer for his country. The multimillionaire over here who was still lost because he achieved all the financial goals that he wanted, was still missing something, still had a gap in his life. He wanted the simplicity of this person over here. The chiropractor and business owner who wanted the 4,500 square foot in North Vancouver worth 1.5 million so he can house his two little kids because he feels so inadequate and because he had a tough childhood and because he wants to make sure that they don't go through that. But he's not even present with them because he's so worked up and he's so distant. And when he's physically with his family, he's mentally somewhere else. They don't want a four and a half thousand square foot house. They want their dad. And the person sitting across here got the four and a half thousand square foot, and they're going, You've no idea. Your rationale and your motivation for this is wrong. I went to the Olympics. I'm the guy that should never have stood on this stage. There's every reason I should not be here. I am so unqualified in many, many, many ways. I've got no background in education, and yet the Canadian Olympic team got me in from outside because I'm the only non-professional kind of they have ever worked with. I went to London, and yes, I was wind and dine. I got behind the scenes and everything else. But what I discovered in London, apart from working with these amazing athletes, most of them don't even want to be there. They're doing it for all the wrong reasons. When I was in the Canadian embassy and I was meeting the parents, I went up to two fathers. And I said to them, I said, You must be very proud. What is it like? I mean, I'm shit excited, and I am only a tiny, tiny cog on the wheel here. This is your son. What is it like to come to the Olympics and watch your son represent Canada? The first father goes, Yeah, well, uh, he could have gone faster, couldn't he? I swear to God. I'm thinking, okay, and I've learned not to judge, although I was a challenging one. Maybe I lie. Maybe there was a bit of, he's an asshole in there somewhere. <laughs> and I wasn't shocked or surprised. I went to the next front, I said, what are you, your son? He's like, hes I mean, this must be extraordinary. Because goes, it's like going to any other race. And these two big, powerful athletes crumbled in front of me. Now, I don't mean they physically bent over, but emotionally, it was like they got their stomach punched. I have called this talk the authenticity code because I fundamentally believe I have cracked the code. And by the way, that sounds really exotic. It's really simple. Everything I do is simple. I take common beliefs, common philosophies, I sit with them for years, maybe I'm a bit slow, and then I filter them through my own body, through my own life, through the clients I work with, and then I come out the other end and see what's going on. And here's what I fundamentally believe. Harvard or Oxford or somebody has proved that our greatest fear is not actually death, it's not spiders, it's not being buried alive, it's actually public speaking. And I heard that years ago, and by the way, I'm always nervous, whether it's one person or a thousand people, I always wanna puke before I go on stage. But I sat with this and I said, that doesn't make sense to me. So I stand up here and I'm nervous, my greatest fear. And I go, well, why am I nervous? Why am I scared? And the next level below that is, I'm afraid of making a mess up. I'm afraid of doing something wrong. I'm afraid of offending you and so on and so forth. And I said, that wasn't deep enough. So I went lower again. I said, so what does that mean? I'm afraid essentially that you will not like me. And what I believe fundamentally at the core is that our greatest human fear in the world is that we will not be loved. And it runs so deep within us, so deep, so far down within us, most of us are unaware of it. We will actually travel the world, physically push ourselves, emotionally keep ourselves away from relationships, sacrifice our social life, our financial life, just so we can go to the World Cup and hear the words, I love you, or I am proud of you. I've seen it. I see it every single day. Because the world is talking about being authentic. It's a cool, sexy world. So it's all be authentic. Cool. Most of us have a clue what it is. It's so challenging to be authentic on the surface, because in a world that's trying to conform us, in a world that doesn't want us outside the box, as Vishen talked about, in a world that does not want us to change. But we're missing the critical step before that, is who is my authentic self? The greatest fundamental challenge in the world is figure out who are you? Who am I? Because at the age of 10 years old, if not before, we're in the playground and we want to fit in. So we pick up a little mask and we put it on to be cool, to fit in, to be in the group. And then we go to college, or we don't, as the case may be, and then we pick up another mask and we put it on. And then we go to a corporate company, we pick up another mask and we put it on. Maybe we take one off and put another one on. And suddenly we get an awakening, whether it's at a or somewhere else, when we're 20, 30, or 40, or 50, or 60, or whatever it is. And we go, yeah, I'm going to be authentic. Cool. We're never taught how to take the mask off, because we don't even know they're there to begin with. I had a client one day and he turned up at the first weekend and he was going to arrive in this workshop with the usual bullshit that I hear all the time. What are you here for? Oh, work-life balance. But he got so inspired by the vulnerability, which is the only real way you can deepen any relationship in your life. Try telling that to the corporate sector who don't want to really grow their people. They want to grow their people conditionally. That's another little pop, but anyway, I'm sorry about that. So... He gets so inspired by the vulnerability, the real vulnerability in the room, that when it comes to him, I said, why are you here? What are you here for? What are you looking to get out of this? And he goes, you know what? He said, with this mask on, I'm confident. I'm a good dad. I'm a good father. I think I'm a good son. I don't worry about the past. I'm not that worried about the future. With the mask off, I don't think I'm a particularly good dad. I worry about the future. I'm not particularly confident and I don't have a whole lot of peace of mind. I know a lot about masks. I wore a lot of them in my life. I also dressed up as a goddess the other night. (laughs) That seemed like a really good idea at the time. (laughs) And not just that I dressed up as a goddess, I then got home to my room at 2.30 in the morning and decided to Skype my wife. come to A-Fest, it will change your life. You will lose all credibility as a speaker. (laughs) You will go home single, and then they'll put some ripped guy on the stage to make you feel inadequate. (laughs) I'm joking, it's great. Guys and girls, do not underestimate the power of this. And most of you do not know, and I say that very respectfully, how this is actually driving you. Question, who are you seeking approval from today? Notice I didn't ask, are you seeking approval today? Write it down. Who are you seeking approval from today? Now, guys, I only have an hour, so don't write too many names because many of you probably have a lot of names. I just want one name. Who are you seeking approval from today? And don't do the macho bullshit sitting there going, oh, yeah, there's nobody. You've heard this kind of thing before. You have dealt with all that. I've never met a human being, ever met a human being that is not seeking approval from somebody. I promise you. Who are you seeking approval from today? Because you know what? We would rather be loved in this world than do what we love. We would rather be loved in this world than do what we love. Who are you seeking approval from today? So one of the biggest challenges in the work that I do is people are so unaware. And I can give you many, 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 many examples of this. So in other words, if those of you are saying, yeah, no, this doesn't fit for me. I see what he's getting. I appreciate there's a girl I met last night. She'd get a lot out of this, but not really me, is how unaware we are. And I brought this girl to her. This girl came to an event I run in Ireland, and she was there for the week. And her biggest challenge was raising revenue, was actually raising money. She was from Calgary. And money was the biggest challenge in her life. And we're three days in, and I turned to her at one point, and I said, uh, would you consider yourself an angry person? And she's a very spiritual, very connected person, which a lot of people, a lot of angry people are. And um, she looks at me, she goes, no, 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 Philip, die." Nah. I appreciate that, you know, you do your work, and I've witnessed, it's very good, and but no, you're actually way off. You're way off. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm angry, no, I'm very connected, and do a lot of yoga, and no, no, I'm not angry at all. The venom that came out of this woman's mouth the following day, not just frightened the shit out of most of the people in the room, but her. <laughs> I looked at her and again, my little spidey senses were going on. And I said, you know what? I don't think you want money in your life. And of course, that really pissed her off. And she got really angry. Fast forward, I won't give you the big long story, but she looked at me and she said, I actually hate money. And not just did she hate money. She hated everything about money. She hated people who wanted money. She hated people. And I'm talking hate. I'm talking like this was old and deep for her. So she didn't respect people who wanted money. She didn't respect people who had money, had a value in money, and so on and so forth. So not just was it affecting her business, it was affecting her relationships. And she was completely unaware. She's 44 years old. She's intelligent. She's smart. But she's just unaware of aspects of her life, as indeed I am today. So I said, how does that work out with relationships when you meet a man and he actually values money, wants money, or has money? How does that work? And she goes, well, now that I have recognized this, not very well. I said, how does it feel to be in a room like this when you've got very wealthy people and so on and so forth in the room? And she goes, not particularly good. And then I took out the sledgehammer. And I said, how does it feel for a woman who paints, which is an expression of your soul, and you have to take this expression of your soul and bring it to someone and ask them for the very thing you hate, for the very thing that you love. And she just bent over like this and just just like died on the spot. 44 years, and she was completely unaware. I believe that we give ourselves what we feel we deserve in life. So I can think I'm a good person, but ultimately I mightn't feel I'm a good person. I think I'm overweight. I think I'm underweight. Or I can say I'm not, but actually what do I feel at the core? We give ourselves what we feel we deserve. And I looked at this woman, and her life was showing up pretty poorly in many aspects of her life. And I said where would you be in your self-image your self-worth in a scale of one to ten? She said, nine. She says, what about you? What do you think, Philip? And I went, three. She looked at me, she goes, that's funny, because the first number that came to my head was two. I believe, and as outrageous as it sounds, and as ignorant and as rude as it sounds, most human beings walk this earth not having a very high opinion of themselves. And I mean very poorly. They carry shame and regret and guilt and anger and all sorts of different things. And yet on the surface, they're talking a great game. They're reading the books and they're wondering why it's not showing up in their lives. Let me ask you again, one name. Who are you seeking approval from today? Let me give you a clue. And this is why I'm coming back to this. There might be one person that when you even he or she enters your brain, you go, no, I don't want to be seeking approval from them. They don't deserve that honor or that place in my life. But I want that name. Who is that one person that you're still seeking approval from today, irrespective of whether you want it or not, or whether it's pissing you off or not? Please write it down. Excuse me. Great question. Living or dead? Thank you. Living or dead? Write it down. And don't say you don't know, because I'll call complete bullshit on that. Okay, pens down, please. I don't trust my brain. Don't trust my brain at all. I used to trust it for years. I don't trust it anymore. It's not my truth. It's what world pours in and it's my beliefs and it's all that other stuff, but I just never trust my brain. But I want to read something to you by Albert Einstein. I quote, The intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We've created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. I don't agree with that. Sorry, Albert, it sounds sexy, but I don't agree with you. There's no such thing as an intuitive mind. There is no such thing as an intuitive mind. This is where your intuition comes from. And then you might go to your computer and open it up and filter it through there. But what most of us are doing is we're walking around this world with our laptop on our head, and the wireless is turned off, so it's not connecting to our intuition. So we're living it from here, and there's nothing worse than living a life up here. I wrote a book recently called Dead Man Walking. You may as well be a corpse. There's very few other things that are worse in this life than living in your head. And people who live in their head all the time, I really, my heart goes out to you, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. You do not know what you're missing, yet you have an extraordinary gift to analyze, an extraordinary ability to look at life through this and use this effectively but there is a cost to that. There's always a shadow side to the gift in the same way that intuitive people that are completely intuitive and can't tap into the head are also being affected. And I'll give you an example. And if you're wondering whether you're a heady person or more soul set person, as I call it, if you ask a lot of how questions, you live in your head a lot. And I had a client one day and he kept saying, yeah, but McKernan, how do you do that? And how do you do this? And how do you do this? And I just got really frustrated with them. And there is some compassion there. There's a lot of compassion there on occasions. But with my work, when you want to fight, I give you a hug. And when the day you want a hug, I'll kick you in the ass. I was on the phone to him, and I said to him, do you know how an orgasm works? He goes, excuse me? I said, do you know how an orgasm works? Do you know all of the breakdown, the chemical, the biology, how it all kind of happens? And he goes, uh, no. I said, who gives a shit? You either want them or you don't want them. Who cares about how they work? Stop asking so many how questions. Just cut it out. If you're still not convinced, soul set. I want to read a quote from Steve Jobs. The people in the Indian countryside don't use their intellect like we do. They use their intuition instead. And their intuition is far more developed than, than the rest of the world. Intuition is a very powerful thing. More powerful than intellect, in my opinion. That's had a big impact in my work. If you look deep enough, everybody from Oprah to Leonardo da Vinci to Bill Gates to Steve Jobs have just talked about, tap into intuition as a huge part of their work. Steve Jobs, I remember him being asked once, why don't you survey your clients and ask them what they want? He said, respectfully, he said, they can't even conceive what's possible quite often. If he actually lived in his head, he'd be more focused saying, okay, what does the world want? What does the consumer want? But his intuition support his creativity, his creativity. So I'm going to give you an exercise, and this is a really, yet again, simple, I love simplicity. I love simplicity. I'm simplifying the crap out of my life, and every time I get to a place that I think it's simple, I keep going again. I do it with my work, I do it with everything in my life. I do an little exercise, I've been doing it for years, called the five happiest days. I want you to identify three, in no particular order, I'd like you to write down three of the happiest days of your life. Now, let me just, as a caveat, just your attention for a second, not that you were euphoric and you were laughing out loud from 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night. I am just asking you to identify three stunning days. Now, if your wife or partner is sitting next to you, do not write down your wedding day because they're going to look at your list and they're going to be pissed. Write down what you truly believe is your happiest days. It could have been a moment. It could have been a joke. It could have been a laugh. Whatever it was, three of them. Go, please. I just want three, three of your happiest days. Three of your happiest days. Okay, guys, pens down, thank you. You got one, you got two, you got five, whatever. Just please put your pens down because the next piece is important. So I did this exercise. I was creating a talk called The Pursuit of Wealth and Happiness. And by the way, on a side note, I want to bore you with my story, but I went through the greatest economic growth of any country probably in our lifetimes. And that was the Irish economy where it went from the poorest country in Europe the second wealthiest country on the planet over a period of 10 years, which is a sneeze in history and economic times. And I watched a nation of my fellow countrymen and women, including myself, chase the money, assuming that it would make us happy. A lot of people think I'm the anti-money guy. Bullshit, I'm not anti-money. It's a byproduct of what I do. And irrespective of what our business challenges are, 90% of it is personal growth, in my opinion. 90% of it, at least. And I remember sitting down with my wife to do this exercise, and it was just really simple, but here's where the magic comes in is you create your five happiest days, and then what you do is you do it with your family. You do it with your kids. And what you'll find is little Joey, his happiest day was the day he went to Disneyland. And Sarah over here, her happiest day was when she was with mom having a picnic, and they just did daisy chains or whatever the hell it was. And you get to understand actually what turns them on and what gets them going and what juices them up. And what and it's just so simple. But the magic goes deeper than that. When my wife and myself came together in the room, we said, okay, let's share I said, you go first. And she said, my wedding day was my number one. And I said, cool. She says, what was your number one? And I said, um, it was my stag party or my books party, whatever you call that. Not because we went pole dancing, lap dancing, bungee jumping or anything else, because we took 25 or 30 guys to the west coast of Ireland, locked them in a little castle. I mean, literally more or less had to lock them in. And then when we came out of there, we walked for about 10 or 15 kilometers to the local pub. I didn't run it myself because they would not have listened to me at all that day. And some of the breakthroughs and some of the things happened were extraordinary. But here's the magic in this little exercise. I got in touch with how powerful that experience was. And it reminded me, it reminded me that actually that day was so impactful because it was my opportunity to give back to my friends who loved and support me unconditionally my whole life. I'm 40 on the 17th of November and I'm actually doing a workshop because I love my work. I'd rather die than actually give up the work I do. And I got in touch with that and I said, okay, so the exercise essentially after that is like, okay, how do we create more of these happiest days? I don't necessarily want my wife to go and get married again, but for me, it was like, okay, what's in that for me? And two years ago, I brought a group of North Americans and Canadians to Ireland for a week and we walked these ancient green roads 5,000 years old. We went to this little castle and we did the whole thing. It was ingrained in my soul. And it brought me back to that place and it allowed me to step in and take some action on it. My second happiest days was a day I worked in an orphanage in Sri Lanka. And I looked at my wife and she started crying. And she said, "Uh, that was hers as well. So I said, okay, what can I do with that? I am dyslexic. I've had to read these little quotes. I probably... (laughs) hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times just so I don't bumble through them on stage. And I went to Toronto and I was speaking at a conference there. And I decided to share my dyslexia for the very first time on a major stage. And I think I cried because it was pretty painful. And I said, you know what, but I'm going to write a book. And I went to the washroom and a guy came into the washroom and he said, I need to talk to you. And we came back out, he gave me his card. He says, I'm a senior editor in John Wiley. And John Wiley could have been anything to me. I didn't know what it was because I don't read books. So he said, I'd love you to do a book. And the minute we start having the conversation, I started to like seize up. I started to like really get nervous. And it was like being back in school again. And about two months later, he sends me an email. says, would you do a book on this subject? It was about real estate and wealth building and so on, which is not really as aligned to what I really and ultimately do now and want to do in the future. But I answered it from here. And exactly the email opens up. And I just write, Y-E-S, send, fuck. Yes, Y-E-S-N is the action, and then it was like, holy shit, how am I going to be able to pull this off? And I rang him, and I said, listen, I'm sorry. I said, you really should know that I'm really bad. Like, I can't write, and I can't spell. He goes, we don't want your ability. To, we want you. We want this. They threw the kitchen sink at me. They had a ghostwriter. They had this team built around me to interview me and extract and everything else. And they did everything for me, and I'll never forget them for that. Some people have bad experiences with publishing houses. I certainly have not. And I gave every penny of royalties to that orphanage in Sri Lanka, because that was my way of being able to give back. Let me tell you a quick story. There was a gentleman came, I did a talk one day in Vancouver, and this guy comes up to me, he goes, that was inspiring, whatever his words were, and he goes, yeah, I'm thinking of becoming a speaker, because I think I've got a message. And I said, great, I said, what is it? He said, well, I was a a very successful business person, I became an alcoholic, I lost it all, and now what I'm going to do is build it back up again, I'm going to share my story. So I said, come here. So I brought him over to the window, and we're looking out over Vancouver, and I said, there's alcoholics down there. There's people on the verge of becoming an alcoholic. There's people who are heading in that direction. And when you stop being so fucking selfish and you start thinking about those people, then you won't need to worry about all the different steps. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the people that you can support and the people that you can help. And that is the only thing that keeps me moving forward and moving forward and stepping into uncomfortable places. I am a master at one thing. It's the only thing you'll ever hear me say, ever in that guard, maybe that'll change in the future, is I'm a master at one thing, and that is taking action. I am exceptionally brilliant at it. Does it always work out? No. But I have a statement or a quote that I use, in the absence of clarity, take action. In the absence of clarity, take action. If you're standing at a crossroads and you're going to to take action or you want to take action and you need to, we're so caught up in our own stuff about how we will look and how people will see us and how they'll blame us and how they'll judge us. And here's my views. Just pick one. doesn't matter. Pick one. And if it blows up in your face, here's what happens. You get clarity. It didn't work. If it goes really well, well, cool. And the more you do it, the more your intuition guides you, and your stats go from maybe 20% hit rate to 30 to 40. I honestly believe my hit rate now is 80% of the decisions I make. 80% of my movement. 80% of my steps work. It also led me to go to Guatemala last week. Because I have a vision for creating an event where I combine contribution and personal growth. And it was Jeff that inspired me to share this little story. And it was like, I'm going to go down. We're going to bring a group of people down to an orphanage. And we're going to do some really, really cool work with the kids. But we're also going to take some reflective time and see how, how is it actually showing up in your life? Which I believe is the missing piece to most contribution. What does it actually mean to you? And we're going to down work with kids. We're not going to educate them. We're not going to buy them shoes. We're just going to hold them. There's infants that are left in this room for 12, 13 hours a day, and they maybe get picked up once or twice to get their diapers changed. I just want to hold them and let them know that someone gives a shit about them. That they matter. There is so much logic to why this is not going to work, and people won't come, and all that shit that goes on. and I'm the same as everyone else. I have all those doubts but my intuition gets stronger and stronger and stronger and I keep stepping into that place and I keep getting rewarded. Your intuition, guys, is so important. It means everything. Is there an area in your life that you're seeking clarity in right now? Raise your hand if there's an area in your life that you're seeking clarity in. And I appreciate there could be many, but I'm looking for one. I'd like you to write down what that area is. It could just be a word or a statement or one sentence. Don't write down the whole thing. Just write a word that represents that one area of clarity that you're seeking. there might be lots, but just one. Just really fast. One word, and that's we're going to move on. So, here's some things that get in the way. Because I believe if you don't have soul set, if you're not connected intuitively, you cannot have clarity about anything. You can't expect to have clarity. But I've been thinking, I'm waiting for that thing to show up. Now, the whole thing, if I could just find out what my purpose is, and I'm searching for it, if I could just find out what that is, then I'd be happy. So here's some things that get in the way of creating a soul set. Number one, complexity. Our lives have never been more complex in the history of mankind. But don't sit there and go, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people have complex lives. I mean, I, doesn't, I mean, my life's really simple. I've had people sit in front of me, argue. And when they go to the whiteboard and ride it out, it's like it 16 budgies flew into the board at 100 miles an hour and exploded all over the board, and it's just mayhem. It's just like shit everywhere, and they're sitting there going, they're justifying how we're masters of two things as human beings, complicating our lives and then justifying why we do it. We're brilliant at it. We're so good at it, it's unbelievable. So complexity, number one. The second one is Attachment. It was a lovely little story, and I'm sure many of you have heard it, but the two monks walking down the road, and they come to a little stream, and there's a woman looking to cross the stream. And the older monk picks up the woman and carries her across. And the younger monk's really pissed, and he gets back to the monastery, and he goes, uh, what were you doing? He said, you know we're not allowed to touch women. He goes, I left her down the other side of the bank hours ago. You're still holding on to her. We hold on to attachments. We hold on to stuff like it's unbelievable. We hold on to our shit. Do you know what? We don't want to let go of our shit because, you know what? It's comfortable in there. It gives us reasons not to grow. It gives us reasons not to stretch ourselves. It gives us reasons to stay in our box. Attachment is incredible. It's so, 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 it just blocks you. And it sits here and it suppresses your intuition and pushes you up into your head. And of course, within these, there's lots of different things with them, but I'm just going to give you the top level stuff. Your story, your own individual story, there is nothing more magnificent in this world than your story. Yours and yours and yours and yours. Your story is the most magnificent story in the world because it's yours. It is the most magnificent story in the world. And if you do nothing else when you leave here, find somebody to support you on in digging into your story because the further, and I don't know who came up with this quote, but it's not mine, the further back you can look, the further forward you can see. When you go back to your past, I have a belief that, and a saying that the past, let's assume this is the past, the past has created the present. for everything you are today. Every decision, every indecision, every thought, every piece of ability to get in touch with your intuition. Everything you are today was created by your past. Your past has created your present, and your present is creating everything in your future. Everything. But why focus on the past, guys? Hey, what's the point? That's old. A lot of people get so pissed when I talk about their story. He goes, and he says to me, he says, Oh, I've dealt with my past. I've acknowledged it, and now I'm moving on. I said, yeah, I can open the door to a complete stranger. I can acknowledge him and go, how you doing? And I can close the door or I can invite him in for dinner and get to know him. You have no idea the magic that lies in your story. And there's shit there too. And the greatest growth is through our shit. And we don't want to go back because we're scared. You go back and visit your story. If you don't do it with me, find somebody that can support you to do that. I don't care who it is. It'll be magical. Because you know what? If you don't, you're selfish. You're just selfish. Because you know what? You're passing it on to the next generation. Whether you like it or not. Oh, I've had a very painful past. You know, I don't want to deal with it. And I've closed that door. And I've got three kids now. And I know I'm not passing on to them. Because I'm aware, even though I haven't ever dealt with it. And you're just passing your shit on to the next generation. It's all you're doing. You have a moral obligation to deal with your story. A moral obligation if you bring other human beings into this world. And if you connect with other human beings. Your story goals. Jesus, don't get me going on goals. We have goals for everything in life. I'd like someone to raise their hand if they set a tremendous amount of goals. Just be honest, please. Raise your hand. Okay, the gentleman there in the white shirt. Can I get you up here, please? How's it going? Good to see you. Is there anybody else that actually, just raise your hand again. I'd like uh, five other people. Gentleman here, the man there. Any women with their hands up? No, this lady down here, this lady here. Okay, that's it. Let's go. Okay, so Mr. Goals, up here, please. So I'd like you to pick up your rope, which essentially is your life. So you're his first goal. So I'd like to give a little pull. The second goal, somebody else, he looks strong. Anybody else want to come up? You're all scared now when you saw the rope, aren't you? Okay, come on, keep coming on. I want you to get this, and I want you to pull. Now, before you pull too hard, what I want to do is I want to explain something. What is a goal? A goal is something that we want to attain in the future. Okay, so this is the future. These are all the goals that we want to attain in the future. And the more goals that we layer in, the more difficult it is to be present. So what I'd like you guys to do is start pulling. Now don't kill the guy, but pull. Come on, pull hard, pull hard. Now just stop there, stop there, stop there. Yeah, no, I, I'm living from an intuitive place. I promise. I mean, seriously, <laughs> these goals are so aligned with my life. Keep pulling, pull them, pull them, pull them over. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Who sometimes feels like that? Like life is you're just barely holding on, but you know what? You're going to stick to those goals because you know what? You've heard somewhere that persistence is one of the greatest qualities in business as in life. If you're persistently chasing the wrong shit, it's a disaster. You're walking towards the edge of a cliff. The result, when you don't create a soul set, in my personal opinion, is what you do in life is you play small. You actually play small. You think lofty goals. You think you want to change the world. You think you want to build a multi-million dollar business, but you don't actually do it, generally speaking. So it forces you to actually play small when you live in your head, even though we all hear that this is the most powerful thing we have. I do not agree with that. I fundamentally do not agree with that. And if that contradicts some of the speakers, I don't mean to be derogatory or confrontational. But the lovely thing about some of this is we're not here to agree with everybody else. We're here to have our own message. And then you guys can take what you need from that. Trust your intuition and lean into whatever it is for you. So just by the way, on the goals thing, I would really encourage you to stop goal setting for a while. Or cut loads of goals out of your life and just see what happens. Just see what happens. But for the logical thinkers, the how people are going to go, yeah, but I need to be able to see how it's going to affect my life before I can give up the goals because I don't trust it and everything. You know, oh my God. It's like, so just give them up. Just give them up for a while. Let go of the goals. Okay, just let go of them for a while. There's two things that stop human beings from doing something extraordinary. One is whether you can do it, whether you intellectually can do it. Well, I want to build a rocket to go to the moon. Well, but I'm not a rocket scientist. I don't have anything about rockets and so on and so forth. I can't do it. I don't have the intellect. I don't have the experience and so on and so forth. That's the obvious one. That's the one that we can get in touch with. That's the tangible one. But then there's one other one that's like a stealth bomber that we're completely unaware of most of the time. And that is, do I actually deserve it? Do I actually deserve this? Do I deserve to have the honor to stand on a stage? And for many, 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 many years... I'm not that old, but you know, many years, I didn't believe I had the right to stand here. That was the greatest block. I didn't deserve to stand on this stage. But it's like a hidden stealth bomber. Do I deserve the thing that I crave? Do I actually deserve it? I can tell you I've never met a human being, not one human being, that doesn't struggle with that. But again, almost every one of them are completely unaware of it. So don't sit there and say, oh, it doesn't affect me. So I know there's people in this room that have dreams and aspirations to step into something. And I know that one of the excuses you're giving yourself is around money, around time. And I can tell you one thing, it's never about money, and it is never about time. The real block lies somewhere deeper. So what I'd like to do is read a poem to you from a gentleman called Alden Nolan. It's called The Sea Six Sailor and Others. And I'd really love you to pay attention to this. So for some of you who don't believe that you have the right to deserve the ability to do something you've never done before that stretches you outside of your box, this is for you. The awkward young sailor who is always seasick is the one who will write about ships. The young man whose soldiering consists of the delivery of candy and cigarettes to the front is actually the one who will write about war. The man who will never learn to drive and keeps going home to his mother is the one who will write about the road. Stranger still, hardly anyone else will write so well about the sea, the war, or the road. And then there is that woman who has scarcely spoken to a man except her brother and who works in a room no larger than a closet. She will write as well as anyone who has ever lived about the vast open spaces and the desires of the flesh. And that other woman who will live with her sister and rarely leave her village, she will excel in portraying men and women in society. And that woman, who in some ways, the most wonderful of them all, who is afraid to go outdoors, who hides when someone knocks. She will write great poems about the universe inside her. It's not our ability whether we can do it or not do it. Most of us don't actually step out and do what we really need to do because we don't feel we deserve to be in that place. And we justify in our heads every reason why we shouldn't. So I want to go back to your clarity piece. And what I'd like you to do is look at the thing you're seeking clarity on And what I'm going to call, very respectfully, is bullshit. I have a fundamental belief, pretty bad business model, that every single human being knows exactly what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Every single human being knows within them the clarity that they seek. I have never been proved wrong on that. And trust me, it's not about being right in this business. For some it is. It's not for me. I don't give a shit what I need to do in order to get someone to a clearer place so they can go out and make a bigger difference in the world. That's the kick I get. Look at that, and if I was to sit with you and I say, if you had the clarity, what would it be? I'd like you to write it down. I believe that you already know. And if you allow yourself to allow that thought in, that belief in, that feeling in, it'll be amazing the clarity that'll show up. You may not be 100% on it, but it will show up. So look at that piece of clarity that you're seeking. Call bullshit to yourself and just say, if I knew, what would the answer be? And if you're sitting there like this, you're in your head. Clarity is not going to come from here, guys. Okay, so some of you might have got a clarity, some of you may not, some of you, whatever, but I suspect many of you will. Many, many, many of you will. So what I want to move on to is, what I want to do is give you some little tips of how to create soul Set. I'm not a big tips guy and systems and the seven-step system to success and all that, because I believe it's very challenging just to put this into a step system, but I'm going to give you some things that I believe are fundamental in creating a soul set, getting into an intuitive place. The first one is that you've got to face the truth about your current reality. It's amazing how many people I meet with the mask going, yeah, 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 just looking for some work-life balance, things are great and everything else, but they're not actually facing reality. They're not actually facing the truth about their existence. And then they're surrounded in society by people going, it's going to be okay, it's going to be great. You know what, sometimes it's just not going to be okay. You've got to face the uglier side of your life as well. But quite often we don't want to do it because we're scared or we don't know how to fix it. I'm going to give you a little story of probably the best story I can think of that illustrates this. There's a famous golfer, well, maybe he's not that famous, you decide, but called Porter Carrington. He's an Irish golfer. And if you're not into golf, don't switch out, please. He did something that was absolutely extraordinary. He not just won the greatest tournament in golf called the British Open, the most coveted, like when you're a professional golfer, you actually, the big one that you want is the British Open. And I grew up around Poor Carrington. My dad coached him and captained his team and all that kind of stuff. So I grew up around this man, a very unassuming man. He comes back a year later and he wins the tournament again. Himself and Tiger Woods and only one other golfer have ever done that in a hundred years. But he goes a step further. He wins another major. So in in 15 months, he wins three majors. Two quick things I'll tell you about Poor Carrington. One was when he was interviewed one day, they said, oh, did you always visualize? You always know you're going to be that golfer. And he goes, no, I wasn't the guy destined to do this. I just worked harder and I wanted it more than anyone else. If you're sitting in a place and you're afraid to make a decision, you know what? You don't want it bad enough. So just don't torture yourself and move on. Let it go. You don't want it bad enough. I want this work so bad that I swear to God, if I had to give it up, I'd rather die. I live in Canada, away from my family and friends. I love Ireland at the core. Canada's been very good to me, but I love Ireland at the core. And for my children, I should bring them back to Ireland and bring them up around their grandparents and everything else. I would die for my children, but I will not live my life for my children. Because you know what? I'll end up presenting them at some level, whether I'm conscious of it or not, like a lot of parents do. As outrageous as that may sound. But they said, Poor, give us an idea of what has been a really bad time for you in your life. And he goes, when I was 15 years old, someone videoed my golf swing. And I thought I had a majestic golf swing. And I looked at it and I nearly died. Now, you could do two things here. You can say, well, you know, if he's none the wiser and he just keeps going and playing golf, well, he would never have known. But he was devastated, picked himself back up, made the changes he needed to make, and that's why he became the golfer he did. He was devastated. The second one is, and I've said this before, is I would encourage you to slow off, get rid of, or some of you stop goal setting just for a period of time. Creating some space. Before I came here, I went to Guatemala, and in between going to an orphanage, I spent three days in the mountains with a guide, just me and the guide, creating space. People say, oh, you're selfish and everything else, you got kids and your wife at home, and I said no. I'm selfish, if I don't do it, because you know what? I miss her dreadfully, and I miss the kids, and I'm a better person and a better husband and a better man when I go home. And I'm a better person for my clients when I create that space. I didn't go out last night drinking because, you know what? I did it once years ago, and I regretted it, and I was shamed that I did. So I stayed in last night because I want to be more present for you. Whether I am or not, only you will decide that. Create some space. Lean into your story, ladies and gentlemen. Please lean into your story in a way that you've never done it before and deal with some of the stuff that's holding you back, like shame and regret and anger that you're not even aware of. And simplify the crap out of your life. Simplify the crap out of your life. And I swear to God, create space and I guarantee you the magic will come in. It always does. It always does. This afternoon, you're going to have some space in the Mayan ruins. And that's why it's an amazing opportunity. Because people say there's no such thing as a bad question. There's a lot of stupid questions in the world. A lot of stupid questions. We're asking a lot of the wrong questions. And then we're asking the right questions in the wrong environment. So I'm going to ask you and I'm going to leave you with these statements. And I'd like you to consider and finish these statements. And when we finish the tour, at some point, I'd like you to take some space on your own, not seven or eight of you together, and sit somewhere in an inspirational environment, and I'd like you to finish these statements. My heart longs for... And you finish that statement. My heart longs for... And you finish that statement. The second one. I don't care what people think. I just want to... And you finish that. I don't care what people think. I just want to. And you finish that statement. My heart longs for. And I don't care what people think. I just want to. As Kayleen said, I'm writing a much bigger book at the moment. But this book, if anybody's interested in a little bit more about Soul Set. It's just a short ebook book that I wrote. And I'm quite proud of it. And it's a free book. That's me, if anybody's interested in checking out what I do. And I'm going to leave you with a thought. And that is the amount of people I meet all over the globe who would believe in God or their God like that, but will walk this world for 20, 30, 40, or 50 years never believing in themselves. Don't be one of those. Please don't be one of those. Because you may not feel you deserve it right now, but you know what? The world needs it right now. Thank you.